Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851, or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are always glad you're listening, and today I want to give you a phone number, as we usually do, so you can call in and participate. The show's much better when you ask questions rather than me just talking myself, so write down 845-5689 so you have it handy and can give us a call. Whatever you're interested in, whatever you're wondering about, somebody else is too, so... Uh, please do give us a call at 845-5689. If you've got a plant photo or something that would help with a diagnosis or identification, you can email it to me at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Well, let's see. Let's talk about some things that are going on here. Uh, and I, one thing I do want to mention uh, I'm going to be giving a online uh, presentation on uh, July 6th, and uh, the presentation is through our Gardening in the Gulf Region programming. Uh, this just happens to be one that I'm giving, uh, and that's Vegetables for Summer Heat. So if you uh, are wondering, what on earth can I do now that it's blazing hot? Well, believe it or not, there are vegetables that are very happy to be outside when it's a sultry 100 degrees. Uh, that kind of sweltering heat doesn't bother them as long as we give them water. So I'm going to talk about some of the things we can grow. So you have that good, healthy, fresh uh, vegetables for your for your own dining and, and use. Uh, that will be July 6th, and we do these in the mornings at 10 a.m. If you want more information on it, call the AgriLife Extension office, uh, and uh, that way you can... Um, uh, get more information, or you can email uh, Janice.Anderson at ag.tamu.edu. Uh, either way, get a hold of us, and we will send you to the link. It's an Eventbrite link. You can also do go to Eventbrite and search for Gardening in the Gulf, and it will take you right to it. So you can participate. Those past shows, by the way, are put on a YouTube channel. So if you miss one, you can go back. This past year, we've gone through all about basil. We've had spring turf and fruit trees. We've talked now about vegetables for summer heat on July 6th. Upcoming talks will be on fall gardening, combination planters, tree care. So as you can see, we kind of cover it all. And over the two or three years we've been doing this, we've got a backlog of videos that you can go back and watch. The nice thing about live, though, is you can chat because this is a group of horticulturists like myself from the region, uh, and we have folks online to answer questions. So if 
to, uh, on the 6th, I'll be talking, uh, but you can ask questions and some of our other horticulturists are there, or they may at the end uh, pause and ask me the question you typed in and we can go from there. So I think it's a great resource to take advantage of. I want to remind you that uh, at this time of the year, we're using a lot of water, as you know. And uh, Jennifer had uh, from the city uh, water uh, department had called in and talked about a couple of things. Number one, uh, we don't need to be wasting water, of course. Uh, I would always recommend, it doesn't matter this season, uh, that watering be done deeply and infrequently. So that little squirt on the grass for a few seconds and then it, it immediately evaporates away does very little. Uh, but when you water long enough to actually wet the soil, but then don't water for a good while. I've got areas in my yard that I haven't watered for a couple of weeks and they're just fine. Now those areas may have a little more shade in them. Uh, the soil condition is a little bit better and so on. Uh, I'm not saying you only have to water every two weeks. But we waste water, and if you're watering three times a week, you're, I can guarantee you, you're wasting water and you're creating a shallow, water-dependent grass, and you're also increasing diseases, because every time we wet foliage of a plant, the chance of disease problems increases. So there's, a, what, three or four reasons right there to not water improperly. If you notice any leaks, uh, that, and that would be water leaks. It could be, you know, with our dry shifting soil, pipes get broken, water lines get broken. Uh, if you see anything like that, you can report them. And I'm going to give you a phone number. Uh, it's 855-528-4278. 855-528-4278. And you can report those. They get fixed fast. Uh, leaks uh, waste a lot of water, and uh, we are at peak demand, uh, almost record-level demand. And In fact, we may have passed the record uh, uh, since we last talked, uh, but uh, it, it takes a lot uh, to get that water to everybody, and, and, and leaks are just, it, it's a lose-lose situation, so report them promptly. Uh, I want to mention that uh, we had a, a question uh, a while back, and I have want, been trying to get to it, wasn't able to last week, but Suzanne had asked about soil solarization, uh, and d does it kill uh, weeds and does it kill pests? And for those of you not familiar, solarizing is basically using the sun to heat up the soil to a level where pests and diseases uh, are killed. Uh, and so that oh, and weed seeds primarily did not so much diseases, but uh, any uh, soil borne disease might be solarization effectively does that in about the top four inches of soil. And what you do is you you prepare your beds because you won't want to mix up the soil after solarizing because it only works in the surface. And so if you solarize and then rototill, you're just bringing fresh weed seeds back up to the top. Uh, so prepare your beds, water the area to get a good moist soil content. Water holds heat well and it, it just works better. And then cover them with clear plastic. And most people mistakenly think, well, I'm going to use black plastic because black absorbs the sun more. And uh, yes, and the plastic does absorb the sun. We don't want the plastic absorbing the sun. We want it to shine through and to heat up the soil. And anybody who's ever gone out to your car on a summer day knows that inside your car it is a lot hotter than it is outside, as hot as it gets. And so we use clear plastic so the sun shines through and heats up the soil. Now's a good time to do it. When it's summertime, it's hot 
rain is less frequent, uh, we can heat it up. And it, it's going to take a while. You need to leave it a few weeks uh, to fully do what it's going to do. Earthworms are smart. They get out of dodge and crawl down deeper. You're not going to hurt your worms. The good microbes survive. They, they do well, but <clears throat> some of the bad ones don't. Weed seeds don't, by and large. And uh, any insects uh, that might be up there would also be killed, like squash vine borers. Uh, you guys have been calling about that. Uh, they jump out of your vine after they've done their damage, crawl into the surface of the soil and pupate there and wait for next year so they can break your heart again. Uh, when you solarize, it kills them because they're up near the surface. And so that's just an example. Uh, but yes, soil solarization doesn't work. Most people don't have enough space uh, to do it. In other words, you're not going to solarize a two-foot wide area. Uh, just the cooling from the sides overcomes the heating uh, and you don't get the full effect of it. Uh, or they can't give up garden space for four weeks because they're always growing something. So maybe you can pick one area of your garden and solarize in it and then plant your fall garden there as we begin to do that. Uh, and then next year do the other area. That's just an idea. But thank you for that uh, email, Suzanne. I appreciate that. Uh, I also have an email from Suzanne. Not sure if it's the same one, uh, but pictures of tomatoes. And these tomatoes have yellow spots all over them. Not distinct spots, but just kind of yellowish areas. And she says when you cut through them, they're yellowish white inside and very hard. And what that is is a stink bug or a leaf-footed bug. Those are relatives, and they do the same thing. And now I realize you just ate lunch, but here we go. They put their mouth in your tomato, and they spit a caustic spit that dissolves cells in the tomato. And then they slurp up the contents, and they move over, and they put their mouth in your tomato and do it again. And so every one of those yellow spots, that's how it got there. Uh, that toxic material they put out uh, causes the death of cells, causes the yellowing and so on. Uh, and so that's what it is. Now, you can still eat a tomato. You can cut around them if you're just a few. It's not like it's poisonous or anything. But if you get enough of them, it, it's just not very palatable uh, to, to eat that tomato. So controlling stink bugs and leaf-footed bugs is a challenge. They are among the tougher insects to kill. Uh, a lot of the organic products, a lot of the less toxic synthetic products don't work as well against stink bugs and leaf-footed bugs. So we go to great lengths to avoid them. Uh, those lengths start out earlier in the season where you learn what their eggs look like. And when you're out there tending your garden, uh, turn over a few tomato leaves and you see them, just snip that leaf off and you're done. Second step is when they hatch out, they don't have wings. They can't fly away, and they stay in little herds of insects. Uh, so put a little container of soapy water underneath and swat that branch, and they all fall off into it, and you're done. Once they get older and they start to fly around, now we're having to use pesticides. And that's a tough thing because you can spray, but maybe some fly in from property next door or uh, they, it just is, it's more difficult. You're putting a lot of pesticide out over a large area because you don't know where they are at the moment. And uh, you can't just spray a tomato. I mean, you can, but more are just going to come in. So uh, that's the, the sad news about those critters and, and a little bit of help maybe on controlling them. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845 5689, or you can reach me by email at gardensuccess 
at tamu.edu. Garden success at tamu.edu. We've been talking about vegetables, so let me just talk about what we do now uh, as far as the vegetable garden, other than water it. Uh, this is that time of the year when not a lot is getting planted uh, it, it, compared to spring and fall. Uh, but there are things we can plant. Uh, when we uh, are, are in this time of year, it's still okay to plant okra. It's still okay to plant southern peas like black-eyed peas, purple-hulled peas, cream peas. All of those things tolerate the heat just fine. Uh, we have several summer greens, uh, Malabar and a vegetable amaranth and Molokia, all tolerate heat very well. And I'm going to be talking about those uh, on um, the uh, 6th of July when I do vegetables for hot weather. So uh, that that's all stuff that, that can still be planted at this time of the year. When we get into July, especially maybe about mid-July, uh, early to mid-July, we begin to plant for the fall garden things that can't take the heat. And I'm going to pause that right there and I'll come back to what we do plant then and we're going to go talk to Phyllis. Hello Phyllis. Hi Skip. I want to know uh, how long and how many times a week should I water? Well that is a that is a difficult question and I can give you an an estimate answer but I can tell you that the exceptions will make my answer wrong at times. So, for example, are we talking about a, a yard or, or what? The v grass or what? No grass, but um, um, uh, beds that are in the sun. Okay. So shrubs and trees, uh, uh, they're able to reach out in a lot of directions and to a little bit of depth. And, and draw on water supplies and they're not as dependent on the tap so we can have little mini droughts and they're just fine uh, anything that was planted recently is going to need watering often if you planted a shrub for example in the spring I'd probably still be watering right where those roots were when you planted it I'd probably be doing that at least twice a week uh, still while it's getting established when you get into perennials and annual flowers then you're talking about much more frequent watering and I would say if the soil is good in the bed uh, once a week is enough if you give it a good soaking, putting out the equivalent of an inch of rainfall down on the ground. Uh, if you want to go to twice a week, that's okay. If the soil is extremely sandy or the bed mix is very chunky and water just kind of runs right through it, uh, maybe twice a week. But an established plant shouldn't need watering more than once a week. And in my beds, I've got beds that I haven't watered in two and a half, three weeks. Uh, just because I allow, you know, trying to save water and I'm watching the plants. So uh, how long uh, okay. should I water? Do you have a drip system or a sprinkler system? Sprinkler. Okay. So get, get a rain gauge or a straight-sided container like a tuna fish can or a cat food can or, you know, vegetable, right. mm -hmm. canned vegetables. And put it out there and turn on the sprinkler and see how long is it going to take to catch an inch of water. And, you know, you don't have to water until you've caught an inch. You can water until you've caught a third of an inch or a half an inch and then just multiply while it's going to take twice that long or three times that long. Uh, and that's how long that sprinkler needs to run. 
in order to water that bed. And there's a lot of different kinds of sprinkler heads that put out water at different rates. And All so right. using your own little rain gauge system to determine, you only have to need to do that once and you know how the system works. So what you're going to find out is you probably can't run the sprinkler for that long without a lot of runoff. Because uh, water yes. with sprinklers, uh -huh. water can't soak into the ground as fast as the sprinkler puts it out. So what you do is you, you do what we call cycle and soak. So you, you run the irrigation cycle. It may run for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, wh however long before it starts to run off. And then it goes off and you wait about 45 minutes or so. And then it goes on again and it does the same thing. And by that cycle and soak, you can get that good deep wetting. And once you've done that, you don't have to water. And a well-established plant that's been watered properly is going to have a good extensive root system. Uh, and so it, if it hadn't been watered properly, you may have to wean it toward that as you build a better root system in the plant. Okay. Um, I also have um, holly ferns mm -hmm. uh, down a sidewalk, and the sidewalk is in the shade. Okay. I and um, I have a drip system there. Yeah, well, that's good. Drip is so efficient. Um, I would watch the plants. In the shade, plants use a lot less water, a lot. Um, I, I just, I bet that those holly ferns are not going to need watering, but maybe every two weeks. But you know, the amount of sun and the kind of soil and and on and on. Like I said, as I give the answer then I realize that the exceptions are probably going to make the answer wrong. But um, uh, given everything being normal, I would say about every two weeks is probably enough in the shade. Holly fern is pretty tough. It is a fern that you get a little browning of some of the leaves, but it comes right back and uh, it holds up pretty good. So, uh, you know, if you got to have a show place for this big event coming up, well, maybe you're watering a little more. But just in general, uh, we can let plants get a little thirsty before we water them. Okay, uh, one other question. Um, I um, have uh, Asiatic jasmine that uh, turned yellow and then turned purple. And so they're dying, and I don't know what to do about it. Do you feel like the soil is adequately moist? I think so. Mm -hmm. I would get out there, Phyllis, with a little hand trowel and dig down maybe three inches and feel the soil. Uh, that's the best way to know. Because, you know, you may have a sprinkler system that something is blocking it and you just haven't been out there and noticed it, but, you know, some leaf or tall grass or whatever is blocking it and the water isn't landing where where it should. Uh, well, uh, no, I have done that. Okay. And um, it it's still, uh, it's purple and it is a fungus. Is it a fungus? So you're saying the soil is moist, but the plants are turning that color. Yes. Yeah, that's something wrong in the roots. Um, one option would be to take a sample of the plant with the roots. Uh, that would be, you know, you might dig up an area six by six or something, just kind of pull it up and slip it into a Ziploc bag with an inch or two of soil, a couple of inches of soil on it, and take it to the state plant clinic here on campus. 
Uh, they do charge a fee, but what they're going to do is culture out the fungus, not just look and go, yeah, that's rotting, but they actually make it give it its name. I think they set it on a stool and put a hot lamp over it and torture it until it confesses its name at the plant clinic, something like that. Anyway, uh, they'll give you the actual disease that you have, and then they can tell you what you might need to use. It may not be that it's a disease at all, uh, but that's an unusual symptom for Asiatic jasmine. And so I think something yeah. else is going on there. So where is this clinic located? Okay, so you go online. Uh, it's a real simple URL. It's plant clinic, one word, plantclinic.tamu.edu, just like our email address here, .tamu.edu. And yeah. uh, it's over on the uh, west campus, uh, not out as far as the bypass out there, but it's a little past the vet school, you turn left and go back in, in that area, into the research park. But when you, f when you go to the clinic website, it'll give you the form. You can print it up and fill out the information that they'll want to know to help them in the diagnosis. And then they, they can tell you where to drop it off as well. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thank you for your help. All right. Thank you for your call. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845 5689-845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu gardensuccess at tamu.edu uh, Let's see, we're talking about planting and what to plant and things like that. So uh, when we get into July, it's time to plant the warm season vegetables that take a while. Uh, so tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and things like that can be planted uh, typically mid-July is a good time to do it. Now when you put any plant out in mid-July, you are, it, I mean, it, it's the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Plants ought to, you know, come chase you down. Uh, but so you want to make sure it gets adequate moisture. Uh, sometimes I'll even put up some little makeshift shade thing. I mean, people devise all kinds of ways to do that. But if you can give them a half day of shade just as they get established well, and then, then they can take the full sun. They just need a little help there. Uh, but you want to plant those then because it's going to take a while before they start to produce, and you want them to set fruit whenever the temperature cools off enough where they can start setting fruit well in the case of tomatoes. Uh, it's not that long until we would then have our first frost, and as things cool off, plant development slows down, and so... Yeah, we got a little window there. Uh, and so that July is an important planting time uh, for tomatoes and eggplant. You can also plant uh, your cucumbers mid to late July and even into August. Uh, a lot of those take about 45 days. So even if you get into August, you're still going to get some, some results from them. Uh, I mentioned the pepper transplants. Uh, squash, uh, that would be also another one for probably uh, very late July or early to mid-August. Uh, your yellow squash and zucchini, we get our second shot at it in the fall. And by the way, I found that uh, the uh, vine borer is not as bad in the fall as it is in the spring. Uh, I'm not saying you can't get it. I'm just saying that's a little bit better season to try to grow squash with the vine borer around. Uh, and then we have this little window in August, and I'll talk about this more as we get closer to it, but... We have a little window about the third week of August when we plant our fall potatoes. Uh, that gives them time to come up, develop plants, and form their underground uh, potatoes. 
uh, in, in before frost. And I'm not talking about sweet potatoes. I'm talking about uh, the uh, what we would think of as an Irish potato or a new potato. Uh, those can all be planted then. So summer is also a good time for uh, planting um, the summer greens that I mentioned before. And it's also a good time for solarizing the soil. If you want to take, give the garden a break, it's also a good time for preparing the beds for fall. Uh, I think that it's good to do that during a season when you're not able to plant much. And uh, that way, when fall comes, let's say you want to grow broccoli. Well, we're not going to plant that until we get probably halfway into September, uh, typically. So uh, if you prepare the soil now, mix compost in, build up raised beds, get it all right, and then throw mulch over it and put some mulch on it, it then is ready for planting. Inevitably, if you don't do that, right when you want to go out, prepare the soil, build beds, and plant, we get one of those rainy periods. You know, that's hurricane season. And, and so then your planting is delayed. So uh, take advantage of some of the early morning hours. In fact, we're about to have a few days here that are cooler, although I hope it gets too wet to get out there, but it, it may or may not. Uh, but that, that would just be my advice if you want to have a good, uh, successful uh, vegetable garden. Uh, Garrett emails, and Garrett has some southern peas that are very strappy looking. Instead of a normal pea foliage, imagine that it's narrow and kind of wavy and twisted out toward the end. And uh, in the process of describing everything, uh, there was a little bit of horse manure uh, used on them and uh, in preparing the soil, which, you know, animal manures are great for soil. I mean, they, they really build the soil. But animals that feed on treated pastures, so uh, if you are growing hay or if you're grazing cattle, for example, horses, uh, you don't want brush coming up and broadleaf weeds coming up in the pasture. Uh, and so they use products that kill those. But those, some of those products can be very persistent, not all, but some. And they can be so persistent that they go through the animal and they're still present in the manure at concentrations high enough to damage plants. And so when I look at, at these leaves on southern peas, the two answers come to mind. One is, is a manure that has been that was tainted and now is affecting the plants, and there's no fixing that right away. In time, it'll break down and go away, but obviously it's pretty persistent stuff, right? So uh, you just have to wait and see. Uh, that if it's a very mild case, which what I see in your plants looks, I would say, medium uh, damage, uh, then milder stuff tends to go away faster than a pretty severe uh, case. The other thing would be a virus. Viruses come into plants uh, from insect feeding, typically, and uh, they can cause different kinds of malformation depending on the plant and the virus. Sometimes it splotches on a leaf, sometimes it's this kind of twisted growth. So those would be the two likely uh, things, I think, Garrett, that you might be looking at. And I did have another uh, question come in uh, with, without a name, but it was talking about uh, specific kinds of animals, you know, like an alpaca or other things that may be out uh, feeding and grazing. Does this herbicide issue happen to all of it? And the answer is yes. Uh, you know that probably I guess cattle may be may have uh, one of the more complex digestive systems in in the sense of they have a number of different stomachs that this this grass goes through as microbes are breaking it down and when you get a microbe rich environment like that it is 
it is great for helping keep bad microbes out, but it's also great for breaking things down. And if these products are persistent enough to go through that whole process and then be in the manure, but get put in a moderate rate in the ground and still damage plants, that's going to happen with any of the animals that it, that it grazes on. And so if you're getting manure, uh, I would just ask about the source of it and make sure that it wasn't on a pasture where a product was used and the grass the animal consumed uh, had that sprayed on it. Uh, if you're using hay, same question, because those products are also pre present in the hay. And I don't want to say that any farm herbicide used in a pasture is going to do this. It's certain ones that are worse than others. Uh, you can go online and, and look up names of specific ingredients, but uh, we do see this every year. And so I just invite you to be cautious. You know, it, your inclination to get a hold of some manure, some hay, and use it for mulching and soil building and stuff, that's a good inclination. Just, uh, what do they say? Don't look a gift, gift horse in the mouth. Well, I would look some gift horse manure closely because I, I think that might be a problem that you could be bringing in. Our phone number is 845 5689-845-5689. Give me a call or you can email me at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Had an email from Robert with a peach trunk and there's some sap coming out of the trunk uh, and uh, there's some sap coming out of branches as well. There's a wound on the trunk. Uh, anything that wounds a peach or plum branch is going to cause sap to flow. So that could be a physical wound. In the case of the trunk, I believe that's what you're looking at, uh, Robert. And in the case of the branches, it often is a disease, a canker-type disease that gets into the bark tissues and kills them, and that's a wound. Even though it's a disease causing it, it's a wound. So I would, uh, you just kind of have to kind of watch and look at it. Uh, there's not a spray that you put on for cankers. There's not some systemic product you put in the soil. None of that is, is available. Uh, you just have to prune out branches that have that problem. Now, because cankers are present in a, in a plant, uh, I, number one, I would watch and wait. Don't just because you see some sap think it needs to be pruned. Nine times out of ten, it doesn't. But if it is something that keeps developing, you need to prune it out. And in between in between pruning cuts, you want to sterilize your pruners. I use just spray Lysol because that is a very effective germ killer, uh, microbe killer, and uh, you, it's handy and you can just spray it right on there. Some people use 10% bleach water. Uh, that's fine. It kills stuff, but it also causes your clippers to rust if you don't get it all cleaned out and oiled really quickly. Uh, it makes rusting even worse than just regular water. Uh, so I use Lysol, spray can of Lysol, in between your pruners. That way, if you did prune into a, a cankered area uh, or pick something up on your pruners, you're not spreading it with each subsequent cut that you're making. So hopefully that uh, will help a little bit. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. Give us a call. Let's talk about uh, things that are of interest to you and your garden and your landscape. And I think I'll pause right here and go ahead and take a call from Troy. Hello, Troy. Howdy. Howdy. Hey, I got a, I got a question for you. So we've got some peach trees uh, that we got from uh, the co-op and... Uh, some uh, uh, fig trees, 
mm-hmm. and they're setting fruit, but they don't seem to be ripening. And I don't know if it's they're going to be ripened later in the summer or what, but they just seem to set fruit, but they don't seem to want to to ripen. What we're trying to keep them moist. We have mulch on top of it, and, and it just. What, what what are we doing wrong, or what could be potential causes of this? Yeah, good question. Uh, so, what what uh, the way it works with peaches is there are peaches that ripen at the end of May, uh, and there are peaches that ripen way, way into July. Uh, it depends on the variety, but all of those are blooming and setting fruit at roughly the same time. So, for ones that are late peaches they're sitting there as little green fruit for a lot longer time before they grow, develop, and ripen. So that may be what you're seeing. I don't know an insect or a disease, for example, that would cause a peach to just be on a tree and remain green and not develop. So my my best guess is you've got just a later variety, and we haven't hit the end of the time when we could expect that to be the case. Okay, and the figs? The figs, now you're saying figs are also just sitting there, right? Correct. Okay, not falling off. Um, so figs, they also can ripen at different times with different varieties. Uh, some figs are capable of producing a second crop late, very late. And so that's another possibility that you might be looking at that. Yeah, these, are the, these have been on there for a month and a half or so. Okay. So. I would continue to make sure they get adequate water because, uh, you know, not adequate water is a reason the tree would just kind of go on hold. Uh, Another thing is when it gets so hot, sometimes even the metabolism things that are going on in the tree tend to kind of shut down because of the excessive heat. And so the tree is not as active in doing the things it's doing. Uh, And that, that can happen. I say tree. It can happen on a lot of different plants. And so you may be seeing some of that, but keep it moist and give it some time. And I, I would try, I would like to know, you know, going down in the future, if you'd call me back and kind of let me know how that, how that goes and, and make sure we're on target with that, uh, th- that would be, would be helpful. Roger that. Well, thank you so much. All right. You take care. We're going to go back to the phones. And again, the number is 845-5689 and talk to Sayed. Hey, Sayed, how are you today? Very well, Kip. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Very good. Happy Fourth of July to you. <laughs> thank you. Kip, <laughs> I have got a couple of questions. One is uh, how to make a crepe myrtle bloom. Uh, it's just not doing it. It has been there for now three or four years now, and okay. it, uh, it just uh, stays there. No, no, no flowers, no bloom. Okay. And is this a plant that you bought? Uh, and no, sir. Actually, this this was a thing that uh, a friend of mine, uh, they were uh, uh, cutting something down and they dig, they dug out a, a small you know portion of it with roots and all. So I they gave it to me. I planted. It survived and has has done well. Actually, the uh, the healthy uh, looks uh, on the on the plant, but. Okay. So this was basically it was the roots and base of a plant that yes. had was being removed. Okay. Well, that, yes, sir. That, exactly. All right. That eliminates some of the possibilities. So crepe myrtles need sunlight to bloom well, 
Uh, and yep. if they're stressed and there's not a lot of new vigorous growth, that can affect the bloom. It usually doesn't mean there's no blooms. It just means there's very few and they're very small. Uh, so those are possibilities. If it's getting good sunlight, it's getting adequate yep. water, it looks pretty good, uh, I don't know why the thing wouldn't be blooming then. Uh, there, there are things that can stress a crepe myrtle. The bark scale is stressful. Powdery mildew attacks the leaves. Uh, aphids attack, you know, feed on the leaves. Uh, there's yeah. things that can weaken the plant, but crepes yeah. are really tough. I mean, you see, you see crepe myrtles growing in very tough conditions and doing pretty good. Uh, but you also see around town right now places where the water has been cut off for whatever reason, construction crepes turning completely brown uh, because they're not yeah. getting the adequate water. So I would, I don't know, if is it pretty sunny where it is? Yes, indeed. Uh, they get uh, full sun for the most of the day. Okay, well, we can eliminate that for sure. Um, other than a little bit of difference in variety, the thing that's causing me hesitation, Syed, is, is that you're telling me there's no blooms, right? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. no. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving you all the things that cause less blooms yes. or smaller blooms. And so yes. if it's getting full sun, it's getting adequate water, that's a good, that is a good stumper right there as to why that crepe. I'm beginning to then now think about maybe the variety uh, not being as well adapted here, but that's a little bit of a stretch because crepes are yes. pretty... Yeah, I, I thought so too because, you know, it looks like it has been there now for at least three or four years now. Yes. And uh, looking good and all that, but uh, no flowers, no blooms. Okay. So maybe that's the best the variety that uh, that's uh, the one that doesn't have that blooms. Uh, yeah. On, on, on have you done pruning on it at all? No, sir. Uh -huh. I have not done. That, well, that's no. not unusual the first four years anyway, but um, I, I would give it a little more time. Let it get a little better established yeah. and settle in. And I realize, you know, you've already waited four years for crying out loud. Yeah. You buy blooms. You buy crepe myrtles in little pots with blooms already on them. So uh, yeah, I, know. Uh, I, I don't know what else to tell you. You know, I think if it were mine, I might give yeah. it another year. And then I'd okay. dig that thing up, if not before, <laughs> and put a different one in. I know f free plants are hard to pass up. But I tell yeah. you... Uh, it's been more than once that someone gave me a plant and I planted it. And then later I thought, you know, I don't even like that plant. Why did I, <laughs> why did I plant it? I know what you mean. So, it, you know, it's, it's sometimes good to cut your losses and, and yeah. go with something else. And we can, we can recommend some good, if you want to plant a crepe myrtle, we can recommend some good varieties that, that do yeah. well, uh, maybe a better size, a little disease resistance, and so on. So don't just buy the first thing for sale. Yes, so uh -huh. I, I'll do that. And the second question that uh, is uh, the the uh, not the uh, the uh, in in the rose variety, not the knockouts, but the, the non knockout roses are not doing well. The leaves are falling. Yes, they're getting brown. Although they get sun and water and everything, yes. but. It just don't look very healthy. Right. And I've had a number of calls and seen a lot of pictures and in addition to driving around town. Uh, yes. it's, it just seems that this oppressive heat is kind of stressing them. And it, it's hard to judge the watering because, you know, 
it's kind of like even us out there. If you're out there and it's 70 degrees, you're not drinking a lot yeah. of water. But when it's 100, yeah. you better be drinking a lot of water. And and these plants, so what used to be an adequate irrigation is maybe not now. Uh, there are other factors that can stress them, but I, uh, I, I would just be patient. And when we get toward the end of August, about the third or fourth week of August, I would give your roses a good shearing, a pruning. You can cut them back by about a third, typically, uh, and and then fertilize them and water the fertilizer in and get some vigorous growth, and you will have the most beautiful October uh, you've had with your roses. Okay. Well, let's, let's wait for that time, and uh, I hope uh, things will turn out uh, good. Yeah. Thank good. you so much, Kip. You have a good day, and uh, always pleasure talking to you. Uh, you too. Thank you for the call, Syed. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, uh, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society is going to be having a birding 101 class on Saturday, July 2nd. So how far away is that? Well, two days away. Uh, the Saturday, July 2nd, they'll go out to the Lick Creek Park Visitor Center. Uh, just south and east, or yeah, south and east of, of uh, uh, the Bryan College Station area. And it, they'll start at 7 a.m., 7.30, excuse me, 7.30 a.m., Saturday, July 2nd. You can bring binoculars if you have them, but they'll have a few loners on hand if you don't, because they want people to learn about and get into birding. This is Birding 101. So don't worry about what you know or don't know. Uh, bring some water. Of course, it's going to be hot, uh, although Saturday, uh, you know, is scheduled to, to be a little bit of a cooler day, fortunately. Uh, and so uh, maybe maybe not, not so tough. In fact, it might be a great day to get out there and do that. But that's the Rio Brazos Audubon Society. And I think that uh, birding is one of the things that in life sciences that is can, quite addictive. You know, once you get in and you get to learning about it and something you never really noticed much before suddenly becomes a new passion. So you've been forewarned. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. We had an email uh, that uh, on weed identification. Identification uh, that has come in from Ronnie, and this is boy. This is the time of year where some weeds are just really thriving. And as I look at the pictures of the weed, Ronnie, it looks a little bit like crabgrass, uh, but uh, in fact, I think it is some type of crabgrass. And I can't tell specifically. There's a smooth leaf, and I can't tell specifically which one. But that's that's what it appears to me to be in the picture. So uh, maybe that soil. That's interesting. Uh, controlling weeds right now, you know, your options. Uh, the, I always like to start with the simplest, uh, uh, maybe more work, but uh, simple, and that is hand pulling when you have a few weeds here and there. I hand pull weeds every day in the garden uh, and uh, just a few here and there because I do all the things to prevent them uh, except for the pre-emergence. Uh, and the other thing would be to use a hoe. There's some really good quality weeding hoes out there. Different than when, when I say picture a garden hoe, I'm not talking about what comes to mind. I'm talking about something that's made to slice just under the soil surface, uh, very precision, uh, very little soil disturbance, and therefore much less labor in the process. I uh, use those. And then when you have to spray, there are products that kill everything. Uh, those would will kill weeds uh, that are grassy and weeds that are broadleaf and kill the lawn if it's coming up in your lawn. 
Uh, and so you want to be very selective as to where you use something like that. Uh, the next option would be to use something that's a grass-only killer, and there are products that kill just grass. So when grass is coming up in, let's say, your petunias and roses, uh, these products don't hurt petunias and roses, they hurt grass, and so you don't have to worry about uh, that secondary damage. Uh, something else that I do, if this is a garden area, and, it, and the email didn't indicate what it was, but when I have weeds that are pretty thick in a garden, I will weed eat or mow them to all, as low as I can, and then throw four to six sheets of newspaper over the top and cover that with some compost or some leaves. I always stockpile leaves during leaf season. And with four to six sheets of newspaper, by the way, you need to wet the newspaper as you're laying it. So you lay a piece down and have your little garden hose and spray the end of the spray the newspaper. It makes it stick down, overlap in a couple of inches as you go. Uh, it just forms a shield over the surface that blocks light. And then the mulch on top makes it not so ugly and not where it's going to dry out and blow away. Uh, and so that will recover lost ground. You don't have to pull and hoe the weeds then. Those weeds then uh, rot underneath there and release their nutrients. They just basically become weed compost uh, for your plants. Now there are certain weeds. Bermuda grass crawls around underground a long time holding its breath looking for a light. Um, Nuts edge will pop through anything just about and so those are exceptions but things like your crabgrass. Really easy to do. And for, for gardeners, let's say, you know, you had a garden in the spring and, and uh, you know, true confessions, now it just looks horrible. It's knee-deep in weeds and you want a fall garden, but oh my gosh, who wants to get in there and do that? Well, you can get your lawnmower weed eater, take it to the ground and use the newspaper technique covered with a more attractive mulch and let it sit. Do that now or do it in July and by the time you get to September, you just take your fingers and pull a little hole in that. You moisten the newspaper overall, pull a little hole in it, and you can plant your transplants or plant some seeds right through it. Uh, and it works well, and it won't take too long for that newspaper to decompose away. Uh, so hopefully that uh, tip will help you a little bit there, Ronnie. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845 5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu gardensuccess at tamu.edu Susan sent a picture of a plant by email uh, that's losing its green color and turning kind of a whitish or very light green uh, this is a uh, some type of a yucca it may be pale leaf yucca or soft leaf. I can't really tell uh, from, from the photo, but it's one of those. And what sometimes um, the plant itself, it's a natural thing in the plants that they lose a little bit of color. This does not look uh, so natural, but it is curious to me that the part that is most pointing at the sun on the leaves that are getting a little bit older is where the yellowing is occurring. And this is not a disease that, that you're looking at or an insect. But it, it's almost like if as the leaf goes out and then bends and angles down, that top bend where it's just like right angle to the sun is where you're seeing it. And I think that may be something going on there, that just the excessive heat uh, in those spots uh, could, be, could be causing that. I don't think you have a problem 
uh, in terms of disease and insect that you need to do anything with. So I hope that I hope that helps. That uh, just I've seen a lot of diseases, and uh, number one yuccas don't get that many, or very few really. Uh, but I think that's what you're dealing with, and so I I wouldn't worry about it. It's not something you want, but probably not something to worry about. Our phone number is eight four five. Five six eight nine. We got a little time left. If you'd like to call in, uh, and let's go to the emails. We had an email from Chris, and Chris has been growing cannas. And as you get toward, you know, well into the season, those cannas are starting to they they get shredded every year. And you know, the question is number one: what is what is an organic control uh, for that that kind of a problem? And what the problem is, most likely, is the canna leaf roller. The canna leaf roller is a caterpillar. Uh, so a butterfly, maybe a skipper in this case, I'm not sure. But a, 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 some lepidoptera, how about that for a 25-cent word, uh, is laying eggs. Those eggs hatch out, and they form very long caterpillars that chew up the leaves and just absolutely eat them all up. And uh, then they fold the leaves of the canna and they pupate in there so they can keep the life cycle going. And so I think you may be looking at, at that in this case. Um, that That is the most likely. So the organic control for that is products containing uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. It's a disease of caterpillars. And um, so when when you go shopping, ask for BT products. You want to spray them ahead of time. Once the caterpillars are folded up in the leaf pupating, BT or anything really is not going to control them. Uh, but you want to spray it on the canna leaves. They eat the leaves. They get an internal disease that kills them. And that is a simple, very low toxicity. BT doesn't hurt lady beetles, and it doesn't hurt all the beneficials that are out there and stuff. It just kills caterpillars, which are the larvae of butterflies and moths. So you wouldn't want to use Bt on your milkweed or your passion vine or things like that that attract very beautiful butterflies. Uh, but that probably is the easiest easiest thing uh, to do. Uh, Chris also brings up sharpshooters, which we talked about last week as well. Uh, and it's the thing where if you go outside, and I was taking pictures of them today. In fact, today I was taking pictures on a sunflower. Sunflowers and okra seem to be two of their favorite. Crepe myrtles are right up there on the list too, but they attack dozens of different kinds of plants in the landscape. And what they do is they feed on the xylem, and that's the tissue that brings water from the ground to the top of the plant, not the tissues that are taking sugars from the leaves through the plant, but the xylem. And as a result, it's not that nutrient-rich. It has the minerals that the roots take up, but it doesn't have carbohydrates that the leaves make. And so they drink a ton of xylem. Uh, and uh, because they're drinking it so fast, they are peeing it out fast. And I have a little video clip I took today against the dark tree, and it was just raining. And one little insect was shooting out, squirting out drops, not just like a oozes out and drips, but little squirt of, of drops coming out, going everywhere. Right. I personally was Im impressed and enjoyed uh, making a little video of it because I, I did not realize how often and how, how much they were putting out. But people talk about, you know, I walk under my crepe myrtles, and it feels like it's raining. And I, uh, last week in the in the uh, Conroe uh, Conroe, oh my gosh, 
it's going back in time. Uh, last week in the Eagle, Brian Station Eagle, I had an article on them. And uh, the, um, was it last week or the week before? Uh, the, the things are just alarming people all over town, and they're not anything from a home landscape standpoint to be alarmed about. Now, like other insects that feed in the plant, they can bring a disease in. And the specific one of greatest concern to us is a disease called xylella, uh, named after xylem, which is the tissue they're feeding on. And these insects bring a microbe in that populates inside, a bacteria populates inside of those plumbing tubes and plugs them up. And so now, although the soil is moist and the plant could take water up, it's a traffic jam and the water can't get out to the ends. And so they turn brown, the leaf tips turn brown, the whole leaves turn brown. Uh, and it is, a, it is a very serious problem on oleanders and it's a very serious problem on wine grapes. Uh, our native grapes aren't as bothered by it. Now you can find that disease in red buds and a lot of other kinds of plants. A lot of weeds have it, uh, and it it may cause a little bit of scorching, uh, but the plant survives and it's not as deadly. If you have wine grapes, it's the reason why all the famous wine grape one of the reasons why all the famous wine grape varieties you might be able to name and think of are not typically grown uh, down in this part of the state. Uh, you've got to get, you know, further away from here to grow some of those types. We have a few grapes that are wine grapes that make wonderful wine that will grow here, uh, and they're not as bothered uh, by that. Uh, but in your landscape, it's not like your crepe's going to turn brown and die. It's not like your cucumbers are going to turn brown and die. But just realize that they are, they are taking some of that uh, liquid out of the plant. Uh, the plants are able to pump a lot of liquid out. And uh, I guess if you had just a totally inundated plant, the sharpshooters could take a, enough of that uh, xylem liquid to maybe cause it to wilt a little more readily. But don't assume just because your plant's wilting that that's the cause. I, uh, we have tomatoes, for example, and we have several other kinds of plants that just wilt during the day because they can't pump water fast enough when it's 100 degrees in full sun. And then they recover in the evening. And that recovery tells us that it's just a trying to keep up problem. Uh, it's not a root rod or, or some other thing like this, not a borer in the stem or anything else like that. So just a few things to think about. Okay, this is kind of a last call for calling. It's uh, got just a few minutes left. It's 845-5689 if you want to get in a call before next week. Uh, 845-5689. And uh, you can give us a call. I'll be happy to visit with you about that. Uh, I try to answer my emails every Thursday when I'm here. Uh, in the meantime, you can get a hold of me at the AgriLife Extension Office, and we can, we can talk about uh, some of your plant uh, questions at that time. Uh, so if you, um, if you have containers, uh, whether it's containers with vegetables or containers with flowers, uh, just be aware that in these conditions, they pump water fast. And I've said before that when you watch gardening shows that are filmed in... I don't know, the East Coast or California, places that are, I would say, milder in general, uh, that, you know, it, it gets 100 degrees in a lot of places occasionally. But when it's up around 100 for weeks on end and the humidity is just stifling, 
Uh, in the evening time, unlike drier areas of the country, the evenings stay hot. I mean, we got evenings that are not getting out of the 80s hardly. Uh, that's hard on plants, and it takes a lot of effort. And so when you watch shows like that, you'll see little containers or, or you know, whimsical things like someone takes an old boot and they plant in the boot. Well, a boot can't hold much soil. And I guess that would work with a succulent plant that doesn't need much soil. But for a lot of things, we need a bigger container. So when you watch shows from those areas and you see containers, just tell yourself, I need a container probably 50% 50 bigger than that. Uh, and it, it just takes more and because they dry out. And when we're growing vegetables and flowers, they may survive. You may come home and they're wilted and it's like you water them and they perk back and you think, ah, we're okay. Well, we're okay. The plant's alive. But you probably lost some production on those tomatoes and you probably lost some floral production on your flowers. And so we just need to keep them regularly moist. I put a drip system on mine on a timer, a hose-in timer, and it comes on every day uh, and waters for the right amount of time for, for the, the drip uh, to wet that pot. And so every morning they're getting a good soil volume filling amount of water in the container and they look good as a result. Now, if you left it up to me to remember to water them, well, uh, what do they say? The cobbler's kids go barefoot? I think that may be a good analogy for that because I have more than once almost lost or lost a plant that I loved, uh, but I got busy and I forgot or I had to leave town for a day or something. And when I come back, it's like, uh-oh, it's, it's about time for last rites for that plant. So containers are wonderful. Just make them bigger. Uh, fall is coming, and we have a lot of great plants, vegetables, and flowers that we can plant in containers in the fall. Uh, and I always like to recommend containers because, you know, I have a big garden, but I also have a lot of containers because I love having them around the patio and at the front door and along the walk and other places. Uh, just uh, it's a little bit of a job to get them all watered unless you put it on an automatic system. Uh, but containers are wonderful. If you don't want to dig up the yard and you want to grow some vegetables, the answer is containers. And you can spend money on the most beautiful ones in the world and, and, and really enjoy the container too. Or you can go out and buy a five-gallon bucket, drill some eighth-inch holes in the bottom or quarter-inch holes, probably be better, and uh, so that it drains well, fill it with a good quality mix, and you can grow a lot of things in a container like that. So kids can learn how to garden, or you can uh, get started while you're uh, working on getting a really nice garden area built or made. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter, and we enjoy visiting with you every Thursday here on KAMU-FM. And we hope you'll tell your friends about the show and see you next Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. 
Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.